We're in a series called Transformed, and I just want to start off, how many picky eaters do we have? We've got a lot of kids in the building today. All right, picky eaters. You guys are just like not even ashamed anymore. Like you've gone so far, you're like, I don't even care what people think, right? I'm not a picky eater, but there are a couple things on my list, and if you know me well, some of you guys know this, and you don't even have to know me well to know this because I've talked about it before, but for some reason, cantaloupe, I just cannot do it. I just... How many of you guys are with me on that? I just wanted, wow, this is, I knew I loved this church. I just, this is awesome. I've tried. I mean, I have tried since I was a kid. I tried and people ask me over and over again, have you tried again? Yes, I've tried again. And uh, I don't know what it is. And so I am just convinced that cantaloupe was created after sin entered the, the world and after the fall. It was like part of the curse. It was, I call it Satan's melon. I don't know. It's just, I don't know how you guys do it but I can't do it. And so my wife gives me a hard time because if, listen, have you guys ever been to a party or something and you bring one of those fruit trays, you know, and it's got like multiple fruit on it and it's got the little lid on it and stuff like that. If, if somebody brings that to a party, I will not eat the surrounding fruit that has been shared because it's shared the air of the cantaloupe. I will not do it. I know it sounds so weird, but I just cannot do it. And so the, the other day, and we were at Real Life Group, and somebody in our Real Life Group brought a fruit tray. And I'm like, okay, you know, what's going to happen here? And, and this lady said, uh, I, I remembered that you, you don't like the shared air of the cantaloupe, and so there's no cantaloupe here. I have never felt so loved in my life by the body of Christ. That's what real love is in the body of Christ. And so that will have a point later on, but uh, I want to start off with a C.S. Lewis quote. How many of you guys love C.S. Lewis? I, I bring out a quote every now and then, but he said this. He said, Christianity, if false, is of no importance, right? I mean, if it's false, who cares? If it's true, it's of infinite importance. I mean, come on. If the story is true, it ought to be the greatest thing. I mean, it should dominate our thoughts. The only thing it cannot be is moderately important. And yet, how many times do we have a lot, of, I mean, how many people do we know, maybe even in our own life, do we treat it as moderately important? But come on, if it's true, it is infinitely important. If it's not true, who cares? But how does it occupy this so-so state in our heart? And I think, especially in our culture today, you know, a lot of people kind of have this half-hearted approach to Christianity Really like, ah, whatever, you know, some people show up, maybe you're here on this weekend and you're just kind of like, I'm here because it's out of obligation. Yeah, I'm kind of into this thing, but I'm not really fully. And you're kind of in that third category, which doesn't even make sense. Like, I mean, logically, I mean, it doesn't really make sense how you could even be there. And I think there's a lot of people who are struggling with doubt. In today's culture, a lot of people are struggling with unbelief, skepticism. There's a word that's been floating around for a few years called deconstruction. Some of you guys may have heard that, where people are deconstructing their faith or the rise of the nuns, and not N-U-N, but N-O-N-E, right? People who check the box that say they have no religion when it comes to, to a survey or something like that. There's been a rise in that. Why? I think some of it has been like this. This is just kind of how my brain works. It's like if you were to put all of the important things that are like the essential important things that belong to Christianity into a fruit tray. <laughs> if you were to put just the important things, it's like somewhere along the way, somebody started putting cantaloupe in there. Somebody started putting something 
that was like, it was not, not that for me, the cantaloupe can be whatever. You know, it could be, uh, maybe it's a, a theological position that was not essential. And they put that in there as if it were essential. Or your political affiliation. Or just like go down the list of things that people now, or maybe it's a particular um, thing in culture, like a culture war thing. They put that right in the tray as if it's the whole thing, as if it's central to everything. And as a result, there are a lot of people who, like, I'm not going to eat that. I'm not going to eat any of it because it's shared the air. You know what I'm saying? And so there's a lot of, and so the question is, have we done that? Have we put something that is not central as if it is central? And as a result of that, our life is now becoming a part of the problem where we are causing indirectly people to doubt we're causing skepticism. We're causing de deconstruction in the lives around us because we put something at the center that didn't belong at the center. Now, those things are fine to debate and talk about, and all of that is, is good and well, but I just wonder if that's happening. And so what we're going to talk about today is something that Paul talks about as central to the central. And if you've been following along, we are going through the book of Acts chapter by chapter and we've made it to this point in Acts chapter 23 where Paul is on trial for his faith. He's on trial for a lot of reasons, but he's standing essentially between, before the Supreme Court, religious Supreme Court, that is. And so that's where we find him in Acts 23, verse 6. It says, Now when Paul's perceived that one part were Sadducees and the other Pharisees, this is the religious Supreme Court, he cried out to the council, he said, Brothers, I'm a Pharisee, a son of Pharisees. And it is with respect to the hope of the, and the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial. So Paul, he makes the whole issue about why he's even on trial this hope of the resurrection. He's like, let's take the fruit tray again and let's take out anything else that shouldn't be there. And here's the reason why I'm in the middle of all of this. It is, he puts at the central of the central, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so Listen, if you are tempted to doubt or walk in unbelief or you're skeptical or maybe you're here and, and you're just still checking things out, I, I, and you're tempted to push Christianity away or to push Jesus away, I just want to encourage you to get back to the centrality of Jesus Christ. To put Jesus back at the center, to put his death, burial, and resurrection right at the center of the tray and then work your way out from there. Don't, don't, don't get all caught up in all of these peripheral issues that other people have put on the tray and get back to the centrality of Jesus Christ. And so Paul is standing there. He says, this is why I'm here. But he notices something about this, this religious Supreme Court. And he's like, okay, some of them are Pharisees. Some of them are Sadducees. And so he comes up with a plan. He says, I'm a Pharisee, a Pharisee of Pharisees, essentially. And in verse 7, he says this, or it says this, when he had said this, a dissension arose between the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And the symbol was divided. So Paul's uh, approach is to divide and conquer. He's like, okay, there's Pharisees. I know what this, how this is going to turn out. And he says, I'm a Pharisee. And, and we'll see why that's important. It says, for the Sadducees say there is no resurrection, nor angel, nor spirit, but the Pharisees acknowledged them all. And then a great clamor arose, and some scribes of the Pharisees' party stood up, and they contended sharply. They're like, well, we find nothing wrong with this man, right? Paul's like working the crowd, essentially. They're like, well, we don't. Well, he's a Pharisee. He's like us. We find nothing wrong with this guy. And, and then, you know, it says, what if a spirit, what if an angel spoke to him? 
And it goes on, it says, and when the dissension became violent, the tribune, afraid that Paul would be torn to pieces by them. Come on, this is like getting really, really heated, which is the way sometimes theological debates can get, right? <laughs> you ever been in one of those? Mainly online. But this is kind of how that works. They're, they're afraid he's going to be torn to pieces. He commanded the soldiers to go down, take him away from among, the, from them, among them by force, and taking him back to the barracks. Why did he do this? Well, here, here's something you got to understand about Pharisees. Many of us have heard of Pharisees in the Bible. Jesus kind of had, had it out with some of them. They were really strict followers of the law, or at least attempted to be, or attempted to be known for that. But here's the other thing about Pharisees. The Pharisees didn't just have the written law. They also had the oral law, the oral tradition, where they added more laws to the law. And the reason they did this was really twofold. One was because they, they, they knew how important the law was, and so they didn't want anybody to break the law. And so what they did is they created a series of other laws, so much so that if you'd follow all these other laws, you wouldn't even get close to breaking the actual law. And so when they talk about the Sabbath and keeping it holy, they would come up with all of these extra laws so that you wouldn't even get close to breaking the Sabbath. They would have all of these other laws. So that was one thing to kind of, out of their own maybe personal convictions, they would then create all these laws and expect everyone to follow them. The other thing that happened as a result of this is that if you followed some of these extra laws, you kind of felt good about yourself, that you were actually keeping a lot of the law. Because you could check a whole lot of boxes that way, right? It's like, oh, well, I'm not doing that, and I'm not doing that, and I scooted my chair out before the night, before the Sabbath. You could do all this stuff. And so they essentially added to the scriptures to try to keep people from breaking God's laws. And then you had the Sadducees. Now, the Sadducees, on the other hand, they didn't believe in the resurrection. Why? Because they essentially believed in only the five books of the Torah, the first five books of the Bible. And they believed essentially that all the other books were extras or add-ons and they, it's not that they didn't respect them, they just didn't carry the same weight to them. And since in the original you know, five books of the law, there wasn't very much about resurrection, if anything, or about angels or spirits, too much of that. And so they really didn't believe in any of those other things because they felt like that the Torah was it. And that was where the authority came from. And so in the same way that, or in the opposite way that the Pharisees added to the law, the Sadducees actually took away from scriptures. And both of these approaches made it feel like, well, it made it hard to see Jesus. Because the Sadducees essentially just believed that you have this life, and essentially that's it. That's all you get, is just what happens in this life. And after you die, there's no afterlife. And so they were taking away from the scriptures, and both the Pharisees and the Sadducees made it hard to see Jesus. And so Paul, he, he jumps on the Pharisees' side just to try to split the council, but it was really just revealing what was happening. And so my hope today is just to get us back to seeing Jesus. Can we just get back to seeing Jesus? And so to help us do that, I know we got kids in the room. I haven't shown you a video for like eight weeks or something like that So since I've been preaching. So uh, this is a Bible Project video just to get our eyes back on Jesus. Let's watch. This brings us to the final section of the Gospel of Luke. 
There was a religious leader named Joseph who opposed Jesus' execution and then requested to be given his body so he could bury Jesus in a nearby tomb. And then a couple of days later, some women who had followed Jesus came to visit that tomb and they found it open and empty. And they encountered these mysterious figures telling them Jesus was alive from the dead. So they run away terrified. Nobody believes their report. I mean, he can't be alive. They all saw him die. Now, just outside of Jerusalem, a pair of Jesus' followers were leaving the city, traveling on a road to a town called Emmaus, and they were sad and confused about everything that had happened. Then Jesus shows up, walking alongside them, but they don't know it's him. Yeah, that's weird. Why couldn't they recognize him? Yeah, it's an odd but really significant <sighs> image for Luke. They're blind to Jesus for some reason. So Jesus asks them, what are you guys talking about? And they begin to tell him about Jesus, a powerful prophet who they expected would rescue Israel, but was instead executed. Some women say he's alive, which is crazy. It's all too much. We're going home. So Jesus tries to explain that this is what the Jewish scriptures had been pointing to all along that Israel needed a king who would suffer and die as a rebel on behalf of those who actually are rebels. And then he would be vindicated by his resurrection so he could give true life to those who would receive it. But it's still not making sense. They're as confused as ever. Which leads to the scene where they sit down for a meal with Jesus. He takes the bread, he blesses it, breaks it, and gives it to them, just as he did at the Last Supper. Yeah, this is the image of his broken body, his death on the cross. And it's when they take in the broken bread, that's when their eyes are open to see Jesus. Then he disappears and the episode's over. So this is a story about how it's hard to see Jesus for who he really is. Yes, this is brilliant. I mean, how could God's royal power and love be revealed through this man's shameful execution? How could a humble man become the king of the world through weakness and self-sacrifice? It's very hard to see. But this is the message of the Gospel of Luke. It takes a transformation of your imagination to see it and embrace Jesus' upside-down kingdom. The Gospel of Luke ends with Jesus and all of his disciples together over another meal. And everyone's freaking out about his resurrected body. I mean, he's still a human, but way more. Yes, he's passed through death and come out the other side, a walking, talking piece of new creation. And then Jesus tells them that he's going to give them the same divine power that sustained him so they can go out and share the good news of God's kingdom with other people. After this, Luke tells us that Jesus was taken up into heaven, which is a cool exit and all, but why disappear into the sky? So in the Old Testament, the skies are the place of God's throne. They're above everything. So this is Luke's way of showing that Jesus has been enthroned as the divine king of the whole world. His followers stay in Jerusalem, worshiping God and Jesus, waiting for this new power, and this is where the gospel ends. Now, Luke is going to write about how they receive this power and take the news out into the world, and that's what his second volume, the book of Acts, is all about. And that's where we find ourselves today is in the book of Acts. But before we head back over there, let's go to 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 7. It says, So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This is a very famous passage of scripture, and it's repeated many, many times in different forms. And Paul is essentially saying that the resurrection of Jesus is a part of that cornerstone. It's the central to the central. It's part of that whole thing. And so I want to give you some thoughts about the resurrection. 
and they're very basic, and I'll explain them, but the first thing is this. The resurrection of Jesus is a cornerstone belief. All right, let's think about what a cornerstone is. Let's define a cornerstone. One definition goes like this. It's the first, set, the first stone set in the construction of a masonry foundation. So if you're building a building, you would set a cornerstone that is intended to, basically all other stones will be set in reference to where this stone and how this stone is placed. And so if the resurrection of Jesus is like a cornerstone, so that all other stones would then be in line or connected to or flow from or be tied with or maybe be explained by, then it kind of helps us to dig into this, this resurrection. If it's a cornerstone belief, what does that mean? And so I want to give you just a few quick thoughts here that I jotted down. First of all, if, if the resurrection is a cornerstone, it means that God loved us so much that he would enter into our world and enter into our pain and take our place. It means that he's a God of grace. If we set that cornerstone of the resurrection, the whole story is tied up in God taking our place and he's a God of grace. It also means that God works outside of our natural and outside of our normal. Because how many of you guys know that people don't just rise from the dead every day, right? That he works outside of our normal and outside of our natural. Like I talked about last week, any Sean is possible. How many of you guys were there for that? Listen, if you missed last week's message... It is probably, I mean, at least at this point in my life, it's probably, I'm thinking of it as my top five messages, like life message, because of what God spoke to me through that. And so if you are dealing with any type of hard heart in any area of your life, I really believe you're going to find freedom as you listen to that. So I encourage you, if you missed it, go back and listen to it or go listen to it again. I've even listened to it again, and I preached it three times, prepared it, and lived the message. So uh, it's important. But any, Sean, is possible. Anything is possible with Christ because he works outside of our normal and our natural. All right. And it also tells us this. If the resurrection is a cornerstone piece to this whole thing, if it's central to the central, we understand this, that before a resurrection happens, there must first be a death that happens. So what this tells us is that if you want to experience real life, you first have to die. What this tells us is that we are conformed to Jesus' image. He doesn't conform to our image. We are conformed to scriptures. The scripture, we don't conform the scriptures to us. It means that if I want to live in Christ, I must first die to myself. That means that every single person here, if you want to experience resurrection life, if you want to experience the resurrection in Christ, if you want to experience Jesus, then you must first die to yourself. That, every, that means across the board, it doesn't matter what your hang-up is, it doesn't matter what your sin is, it doesn't matter what your preference is, it doesn't matter what your feelings are, every single one of us, 100%, have to come to the cross and die in order to experience resurrection life. So I have a lot of people today, and you might hear a lot of this chatter about all everybody's preferences and everybody's feelings and everybody's thoughts and all these you know, positions and theological or, or otherwise. Cultural, doesn't matter. Every single one of us equally, 100% die to ourselves. See, there's so much preaching today about come to Jesus and you'll have a better life. You know what? It will be a better life, but you first die. You first die. Because if you want to experience resurrection life, there has to be a death. 
And it doesn't matter what you struggle with. It doesn't matter what you, if it doesn't line up with scripture, we die to it. And so, well, I mean, because the Pharisees, the Pharisees tried to add to scripture, they needed to die. The Sadducees tried to take away from scripture, they needed to die to self, to come and line up with Jesus Christ. Now, that's not preaching that you'll hear every day these days. I realize that, but I say it with I say it, as I said a couple weeks ago, like rooted in the love of Jesus. Because it is the love of Jesus that come, calls us to this death, burial, and resurrection. So you can debate tithing if you want. You can debate all of these peripheral things. You can put whatever you, you try to put whatever you want. But listen, the, the thing is, as far as core beliefs of the Christian faith, it's all or nothing. We don't pick and choose. It's, it's all or nothing, right? And so we surrender our preferences, we surrender our feelings, we surrender our wants, we surrender our ways to Jesus. The second thing about the resurrection is this, the resurrection of Jesus is a keystone belief. Now, I've, I've shared this before, but uh, anybody like to exercise? I know you, you, some of you guys actually might, but all right, does anybody ever exercise? Has anybody walked today? Okay, that's good, it's a good start. Charles Duhigg, he, he wrote a, a book, um, that I heard, heard about a long time ago called The Power of Habit. Some of you guys may have read it or something. But basically, there was a lot of studies and stuff that they did, and they talked about the power of if you can set one key habit in place, that you will inadvertently and almost unknowingly start to trigger other things that happen in your life. So he called them keystone habits. And so one of them that they studied, and there were several of them, but one of them was just, just as simple as this, that if you can set a habit of exercising in your life, like doing a workout, even just once a week, if you can just get that habitual exercise once a week, they found out that what happens is it starts to trigger these other things just by setting that one keystone habit in place. And here's what they found. They found out that even once a week, it changed these other areas. Like people started to eat better as a result of exercising. Now, it wasn't that they set out to eat better. It's that they set that one habit in place and they found themselves triggering these other things. They found that they also became more productive at work. So I don't know how they studied all that, but they gauged all of that. It, they found that people smoked less, that people were more patient, however they rated that or self-reported that. They found, listen to this, the people used credit cards less because they had less stress. And so this one keystone habit began to trickle out into every area of their life. Or maybe we could put it this way. Have you heard of keystone species? That if you remove like a certain plant out of an ecosystem, the whole ecosystem collapses, right? They did all these studies about this at different places. That they, this otter was hunted to extinction or something. They thought that the, you know, the otter was a problem. It turns out it was some sea forest kelp or something like that that the, that the otters were eating an urchin that it was keeping the kelp alive I mean, it was this whole thing but if you remove one thing the whole thing collapsed all right for those of you guys kids let me just put in the kid way have you guys seen the bee movie right bee movie you take the bees out we're all gone okay so that's kind of how that works the resurrection though is like a keystone belief and here's how it might work in your life if you can settle this keystone belief in your heart if you're struggling with doubt you're struggling with unbelief you're struggling with skepticism. If you can settle this one keystone belief in your heart, it starts to settle other beliefs. If you can settle that Jesus actually rose from the dead. Now, if you can't settle that, then you're going to struggle. But if you can settle that, I believe Jesus rose from the dead. 
then all of a sudden these other things start to fall in place. Watch this. Even Paul talks about this in 1 Thessalonians 4.14. Well, look carefully at the scripture. It says, For since we believe that Jesus died and was raised to life again, that's the resurrection we're talking about, since we have this keystone belief, if I were to put it in these, this language, then we also believe that Jesus is going to return. See, I put a keystone belief that I believe in the resurrection. So now I also, it's a lot easier for me to believe in the return of Christ. So see, some of us start on the outside working in and we're trying to like, I don't, is Jesus coming back or is it, well, how does that work? I, I've seen a lot of movies about that. I don't know how. But if you settle this, then it helps you to settle another one. And if we believe Jesus returns, that God will bring back with him the believers who have died. You see how this one keystone belief now helps me understand that one day we too will have resurrected bodies. Because, you know, it's really, you know, if you're outside looking in, that's a hard thing. And it even it's a mystery to us as well as how that's going to happen. But if I can settle that Jesus was raised from the dead, then these other things start to fall in place. Let me give you an even easier one to settle in your heart. If you can settle Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. If you really settle that in your heart, I believe that God created everything that I see. Everything that I even don't see. I believe there, if you settle that one scripture, how do you guys know? If you really settled it, it's a whole lot easier for you to settle a whole lot of other things, isn't it? See, a lot, the problem is we're all, a lot of people are working from the outside in. But if you can settle a keystone belief, everything else starts to fall in place. So you can start to think, if I settle the resurrection then that means that Jesus died, buried, he took my place, he raised from the dead, he conquered sin, he conquered death, he conquered hell. That means that Jesus took my place, which means that I am in right standing with God, not because of what I have done, but because of what Jesus has done for me. So I can stand before God, not on the basis of my own works or my own merit, but on the work that Jesus Christ did for me. You see, if then, if then, I can start to apply an if then, because the resurrection is not just a cornerstone belief, it's a keystone belief. But let's wrap this up because the resurrection is also a capstone belief. This is very similar to a keystone, but uh, and people kind of use that interchangeably. But just to help you understand the capstone keystone concept, I'm going to illustrate it through one more video. So let's take a look. All right, I'm standing in a cemetery, which I guess is a good place to be talking about resurrection. And I found this cool arch. And what is awesome about this arch is it just reminds me of the, the Roman arches. They would do it a little bit differently, though. I mean, this is, this is pretty cool, but the Roman arches, they would have in the very center right up here, they would have what's called a keystone or a capstone stone that would basically take all the tension of both columns and all the the rocks that were coming to the to the center and by putting that keystone or that capstone stone in there it would hold all of them in tension and if you were to remove that stone the whole thing would just crumble and fall down and so Paul talks about the resurrection that way in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 it says now if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead how can some of you say there's no resurrection from the dead but if there's no resurrection of the dead then not even Christ has been raised and if Christ has not been raised then our preaching is in vain and if you're and your faith is in vain we even are found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ whom he did not raise if it is true that the dead aren't raised for if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. 
And if Christ has not been raised, then your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. And if in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. So Paul is saying, if you take that capstone out, then the whole arch falls down. And so it just goes back to say that Christ is who he says he is. He's, he's either a liar and he's not, or as some people say, well, he's a liar, or a lunatic, or he's Lord. He's savior of all. But if you remove that capstone, the whole thing crumbles. So the resurrection is a capstone belief. Um, it's so important today to realize what's important. So important to realize what's important. Because everything else gets set by it. Everything else is held in tension by it. If you remove the important things, things in your life, and you can apply this to everything. If you remove the important things in your family, the, the most important things, then stuff crumbles. And you start to surround yourself with the peripheral. Listen, uh, a few, several years ago, um, when I was a teenager, I was part of this large church. There was, they would have the, these guest speakers in all the time. And one particular guest speaker I really, really liked. He was... Uh, he always, he always talked about Jesus and Jesus the answer and all sorts of things. And, and he, he would, you know, have this powerful prayer times and ministry times. And just as a teenager, I really looked up to him. And, and later on, as I became a youth pastor at that church, I got connected with him. And even after I left that church and we started journey, I still stayed connected with him and stuff. And so eventually, uh, one day we, we were talking, Pastor Aaron and I were talking, we were like, wouldn't that be cool to have him in? You know, like to have him to come and to minister here at our church. That'd be so cool. And so we did. And so years ago, we had him come in and preach and minister and pray for people. And it was just, a, it was like old times for us. I mean, it was just like awesome, right? Well, Pastor Aaron and I went to lunch with him and we got to talking. And as we got to talking, it came out that he didn't believe really in heaven anymore. He didn't believe that when we died that we would that there was an afterlife, that we would be with Jesus, essentially. He believed that this was the life that God gave us, and that's it. So enjoy, live for God, do all those good things, but this is it. Of course, we're shocked, right? What happened? He eventually, he essentially became a Sadducee. He didn't believe in the resurrection. And whether he knew it or not, by throwing the resurrection out, he's thrown it all out. He's thrown it all out. Paul says, you take out the resurrection, you don't have anything. This is a core belief. It's a capstone belief. It's a keystone belief. It's, it's held under such tension that if you try to remove the resurrection and the resurrected life, everything crumbles. What is this saying? It's saying you cannot approach Christianity just as a good teacher or good morals. That you have to approach it as he is God He's the God who, who died, was buried, physically dead, and physically rose from the dead. That's the gospel. You take that or you leave that. That's what Paul is saying. And come on, if that really happened, it's of infinite importance. But if it didn't, who cares? Go live your life. Go be nice to people and have a good time. But what it can't be is just, that's kind of cool. That's a great story. It can't be that. How could it be that? It's got to be all or nothing. And so 
as we go through, Paul is taken away from people, you know, to be protected. In verse 12, it says, when it was day, listen to this. This is how contentious this is. The Jews made a plot and they bound themselves by an oath neither to eat nor drink till they had killed Paul. Now it's getting serious. They are not going to eat or drink. So they got a time clock ticking before they're going, and they start to plot that they come up with this whole plot that, okay, we're going to ask them to come down and bring Paul down, and we're going to ambush him and all this type of stuff. Verse 16, something interrupts their plans. It says, now the son of Paul's sister heard of their ambush. It's the first time we hear that Paul has a sister. <laughs> he's got a nephew. So Paul's nephew, somehow he's, he's overheard this. And he overheard them plotting about it, and he goes and he tells Paul. And so Paul tells him to tell the soldiers and the ones in charge, and so he does. He tells a soldier, and the soldier responds this way in verse 23. It says, then he called two of the centurions and said, get ready 200 soldiers with 70 horsemen, 200 spearmen, and go as far as Caesarea at the third hour of the night, about 9 p.m. at night, and also provide mounts for Paul to ride and to bring him safely to Felix the governor. So the, the soldier says, get 470 soldiers to guard Paul and to take him. Have, you guys have like never even read this scripture before, right? I mean, like imagine this, 470 soldiers. This is how important it is for this soldier to say, we've got to get whatever Paul's got to say and the, the truth that he holds, we've got to get it to the next place and preserve that. That's what they're doing. It's 470 soldiers. What, what are we saying? What, what do we see here? Here's what I see. That just as it took 470 soldiers for Paul to be guarded and that truth within him, you have to guard the truth that is on the inside of you. Sometimes you have to get extreme about it. Sometimes you have to get excessive about guarding the truth that is on the inside of you. You have to guard on the inside of you. Because there, why? Because there is a plot out to steal the truth that's on the inside of you. There's a plot that is out to try to kill the truth that's on the inside of you. There's a plot that's out to try to destroy the truth that's on the inside. How do I know? Because the enemy comes to steal, kill, and destroy. So you have to guard the truth that's on the inside of you. You have to guard core beliefs like this. You can't be swayed by culture and by whatever happens or by the winds of theological uh, you know, changes that, that, that happen. You have to guard it. We can't be like the Pharisees who add to it. We can't be like the Sadducees who take some away. What's interesting is the Sadducees essentially saw the Pharisees as many people today would see progressive Christians. That <laughs> They were adding a bunch of stuff to the scriptures. And then the, the, the Pharisees saw the Sadducees essentially as extremely conservative people that were taking away from scriptures. We can't fall in either ditch. We have to guard the truth that's on the inside. How do you do that? What, what's one way to guard the, the truth? Well, I shared a couple weeks ago how Becca and I, when we were on a sabbatical, we went and took a trip up to Canada into Banff and Jasper National Parks up into the, the, I mean, some of the most beautiful places on the planet. It's just amazing to go and to do that. And one thing that happened is we're I was driving, we lived out of our truck for like 10, 11 days. It was awesome. Some of you guys are like, I don't, I don't get that, but it was awesome. So we're driving, crossing over the border into Canada, and we made it through, and and all of a sudden, I realized, I don't know why I didn't think about this, but I realized, oh, like, the sign, that's the speed limit. That's really high. Like, I don't know if I can go 110 right now. And realized, oh, that's kilometers. <laughs> like, that's, and so had to had to park my truck. I realized that, oh, I can change the settings of my display to actually function out of kilometers, like the di digital display. 
And so, and then when we started to go on hikes, like everything was in meters. And so like, how many meters is that? Like, I wasn't like thinking that way. How many meters of elevation is that? And so it was really, really confusing at first because we were trying to adjust to all of that. But can I tell you that by the end of like, we were there six or seven days and by the end of that, we were starting to think in kilometers and meters. Like when I started to think about how far it was to drive someplace, like I had already started to switch my brain over into how long that was. When I started to think about hikes, we started to think about how long it, it was in meters and how the elevation would be in meters. We started to shift and to start to think in kilometers and meters. See, what living by faith is, living by faith is when you start to adjust and to shift and to start to think in the country that you're going to, not the country that you are. So when you start to think in heaven's measurements, even while you're here, when you start to think in heaven's language, even while you're here, when you start to think in heaven's, at heaven's pace, when you start to think about what the kingdom of God is, what's right and wrong in the kingdom of God, regardless of what it says right here, you, you start to think in that other language. See, faith is living in the country that you're going now, in the here and now. You see, you can live by faith in such a way that even though you aren't accustomed to it, you can start to, even while you're still on this earth, you can start to think in kilometers and meters. You can find yourself thinking by default in heaven's language. That's living by faith. You know, if you want to travel someplace, have you guys ever traveled someplace far and you got jet lag? Anybody done that before, right? Jet lag. All right, this is like hitting real, I guess. But what do you do? They, they say one of the ways to mitigate that is before you go on the trip, go ahead and set your watch to the time zone of where you will be going so that you start to think in that time, even though you're in this time. You see, what living by faith is, is when we set our spiritual clock to the time zone we're going in. And so that even though it may be midnight here, we're living as if it's morning. Even though we're living in darkness, we're living in light by faith. Because our clocks are set to another clock. So one of the ways you guard the truth on the inside of you is you don't live by the, the, the measurements here. You live by heaven's measurements. You don't live by the standards around here. You live by this standard regardless, right? And that's how we set. And you'll find yourself thinking in kilometers and meters. You'll find yourself thinking at heaven's pace, at Jesus' pace. You'll find yourself thinking in heaven's measurements instead of earthly measurements and standards. Is anybody getting this this morning? When you find yourself doing that, see, when you walk by faith long enough, you'll find yourself in your defaults thinking heaven's thoughts. And so what we want to do is we want to remind ourselves of the core of the resurrection. And so the worship team can come back up. We're going to receive communion. You see, at this tray, at these tables, represents something very important. There's no cantaloupe at these tables, I'll tell you that right now. What it is, is what's central to our faith. It represents the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. So I'm going to read it. one last scripture, Hebrews chapter 9, verse 28. It says, So Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, here comes an if-then, he will also appear a second time. 
Not to deal with sin, he's already done that, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. What we're reminded of when we receive the juice is the blood of Jesus that was spilled for us. Some people say, well, how can one man account for all the sin of the world? It's because he was 100% God, 100% man. When Jesus' blood hit the earth, it was the most precious substance that ever hit the earth. It was God in the flesh. It was his blood that hit the earth. So how could one man's blood account for it? Because it was the most precious substance ever known. And when it hit the earth, it was the most price, price, it was the highest price that could ever be paid. So when we receive the juice, we're reminded of the blood. When we receive the cracker, that reminds us of his body that was broken. But we're also come to the table not just celebrating a death, we're celebrating the resurrection. Because it's in the resurrection that he defeated sin, death, hell, Satan, the grave. He defeated all of that. It's not just about how he took our place and died. It's about how he took our place, died, and paid the price for sin, but also conquered sin, conquered death, defeated death, hell, and the grave. It's finished, and he's alive so that we might also be alive. Well, I started off with a C.S. Lewis quote. Let me end with one. He says, we may note in passing that he, that's Jesus, was never regarded as a mere moral teacher. He did not produce that effect on any of the people who actually met him. He produced mainly three effects. One, hatred. Two, terror. The third was adoration. There was no trace of people expressing mild approval. So my message today is calling us back to the centrality of Jesus. If the story is what it is, it's of infinite importance and demands that we come and we give our life, we surrender our life to Him. And you can even do that in this moment. You don't have to go through some fancy thing. I don't even have to lead you in a prayer. You can just surrender your heart to Jesus, confess with your mouth and say, Jesus, I surrender. You can do that right there anytime. If it's not true, why show up to church? Why go through this whole thing? Why play a game? If you're struggling, I get it. Please come around. Hang around us for a while. Maybe, maybe something will start to click into place. But listen, if you've been following Jesus for a long time, what I want to encourage you guys, if you have found that Jesus has just become moderately important to you, it's time for a wake-up call. It's time to say Jesus is all or nothing. He's my all in all. I have decided to follow Jesus. No turning back. No turning back. So would you guys stand up with me as we prepare our hearts to receive? How we're going to do this, there's tables in back, tables in front. Just come and grab the elements. Take them back to your seat during this song. Have a moment there with Jesus. Right there at your seat. Receive the elements. Take the bread. Have a moment. Say thank you, Jesus, for your sacrifice. Take the juice. Say thank you, Jesus, for your sacrifice. You can do it more elaborately than that if you want to, but it, it can be as simple as that. And then we're just going to worship. So Lord, we come before you, we say, come have your way in us. Remind us of the centrality of Jesus again. Remind us to take anything off the tray. And it's, it's okay to think about those things and talk about those things and wrestle with those things, but help us to come back and realize that if we can just come back to the death, burial, and resurrection and understand that whenever I come up to something that doesn't look like you, I need to surrender it so that I can experience real life in you. Lord, 
remind us of that during this time. Lord, we repent of any areas that we need to surrender. We repent of our indifference. We say, God, would you come and remind us of your infinite importance today as we receive this communion in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's come and receive.